interesting to uh, to then to come then to come and uh, at first one of the main things that people are uh, afraid of actually and like how can I how can I not talk for for days on end for a week and once you settle in and feel like the commu- the both the community and the support of the practice it's one of the most delicious aspects of being on retreat is having the opportunity for silence and without the obligation of of uh, of the normal ways that we socially engage, and yet there's still a big field of love here, and it's 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 so it's quite amazing, very refreshing, and does offer many new insights. So um, each of us are going to talk for just a very few minutes on a particular aspect of uh, practice. And in this sense, uh, a little bit about uh, practicing in life <laughs> and what, what that is in, in some ways, what it isn't, too. So practice, of course, is not just, uh, is not just meditation or qigong, but these are important aspects. So I'm going to talk, uh, talk a little bit about that and then... Uh, Bonnie and Vinny will take different threads and open them up, and then we'll have the opportunity to uh, to check in with you and and hear your questions. Uh, and so the ideas that we put out are like are more like seeds right now, just to uh, so that they will um, maybe inform some of your your questions or your inquiry there. Um, in terms of practice, well, you know by the theme of this retreat being metta and qigong, the, the integration and the cultivation of both the aspect that we sometimes call our mind and the, the way that a certain aspect of dharma practice is cognitive um, is quite important. But it is equally important, in my view, to, uh, to cultivate a life essence. And that's not necessarily just about doing Qigong, although I think the Qigong is an excellent vehicle for integration and for allowing the sense of mindfulness to be inside and into and through the fabric of our bodies. And it works in a way that is unique, of course, than just um, uh, solitary meditation. Solitary meditation can be a wonderful gateway, and has been for low these many decades and, and uh, centuries and millennia. Um, but as I said today, the, the practice itself over time evolves, and Buddhism itself has evolved. That doesn't mean in a sense that uh, we're making up new stuff about the core teachings of the, of the Buddha. But the way that that's communicated and the way that we understand it relevant to our lives is quite important. So there is evolution. There is transformation and change, and that's part of our practice. 
So the, uh, the things that I might offer you in terms of uh, practice in the sense that it is contemplative are a, a couple of aspects briefly. One is that you need to kind of find the resonance for you of what, of what works. And you've had an opportunity uh, over these days to work a lot with meditation in the seated and standing form, and of course in the moving form with both the walking meditation and with the uh, Qigong practices. So working with those to that in a way that develops both your presence in meditation, but also uh, develops health and strength. And these are important aspects to, uh, to your practice. So I really would encourage and warmly invite you to continue in the pathway of the dual cultivation of the presence of the teachings of the Dharma and the embodiment of the Dharma. And... Uh, that can happen in a number of ways, of course, but you know that I have a slight bias towards, uh, towards, qi, towards Qigong in the way that I've developed it and practiced it over uh, decades. Um, so here is the, here's the kind of the, a little bit of the method that I might suggest to you, and then you can take and modify that according to... Uh, to what works best for you. I always feel that um, short periods of practice are good. And the reason I say that, and I'll tell you what I think a short period of practice is, is that it's a lot about the quality of your practice than the quantity of your practice. So to set out and say, to practice, I, oh, I'm very inspired after this retreat. I want to sit for an hour. I want to sit for uh, 45 minutes, and I want to practice Qigong for that 45 minutes or whatever. Um, to, to make those kind of edges on uh, your, your uh, endeavor um, is kind of asking for it, actually. You're, uh, y- you will... Uh, you'll you'll meet up pretty quickly with all the reasons that you can't do that kind of uh, engagement in terms of time. And our time these days in modern life is uh, is uh, is different. <laughs> the things that draw our attention, and by that I mean the things that draw our attention, uh, the. the our responsibilities to uh, our work and to our families and, and all the other things that, that draw us. But the, um, so what I would recommend is that you take um, a short amount of time, and by that I mean 15 to 20 minutes. And if you take, can do 15 or 20 minutes and integrate somatic practice with sitting practice, and just let longer periods call you. Um, uh, practice for a short amount of time like that, but do it with some continuity. And uh, every day, it's, it's not hard to change a pattern for 15 or 20 minutes in your lifestyle. 
And one of the interesting ways that you can do that is rather than just say, well, I think when I get up, I'm going to, um, you know, yeah, I'll practice a little Qigong and then I'll sit for a while. And that's a great intention. But what kind of helps to solidify that is if you write it down on your calendar. That might seem like a little contrivance, but it's a really good one because a lot of us work with calendars, do we not? Right? You work with your calendar. So if you have in your calendar meditation, you know, get up, do what you do in the morning, and then you're then you have a period of time before you either do breakfast or if you do that, and then have to engage in life the way that you do. If you put that in there, that is uh, that's a really good marker and kind of helps you to uh, then to engage, and you know. Someone wants that time. Well, I'm sorry, it's in my calendar. I have, I have plans for that time. It, it works. So that kind of engagement with your, with your practice flow, uh, the quality of the time that you spend, and I think that you saw this week when you practice standing meditation, in a relatively short amount of time, you can really drop down you can drop into that st- the, the, the stasis and the poise and the centering and the alignment. And if you learn to stand and learn to sit like that, that is really a really skillful means. Um, it's better to do it with, with continuity because I'll just say that binge training rarely works. You know, I'll wait till the weekend and I'll practice two hours. Um, if you come to the weekend and can practice for a longer period of time, that's absolutely great. And who knows when your weekend is. It might be Wednesday and Thursday for certain people, you know. Anyway, um, uh, I hope that you get the drift of what I'm offering. And it's just uh, a way, it's a pathway into uh, to explore the benefits of the accumulation of the goodness of your practice over time. One other thing I'll say, and then I'll pass this along, but um, a very skillful means is to choose a, a cycle of practice. Like what I often do with my students is I'll say, uh, you're learning this new gong, so practice this for 21 days, nonstop. You know, you spend your 15 or 20 minutes practicing this. And if you like, I'll give you uh, a download of a, of a sheet that has the place for the date and your practice and maybe a, a simple remark. But that helps to give you the sense of continuity of your practice. Don't, uh, don't try to assess the value of your practice while you're in that flow. Wait till you're done with that practice and then assess. So one of the things that we do is like, settle into a practice and then um, uh, make a judgment on it right away. Well, meditation really doesn't work or, you know, this is not really that cool. And, and we'll, um, we'll make those values and it'll interrupt the potential that is available out of the accumulation of our practice. So um, those are a couple things that I might offer you and offer you to uh, explore those are useful uh, pathways to, to, 
to uh, gaining the deeper value of practice in the sense that I've laid out. I'm going to pass it over to my dear friend, Bonnie. Thank you, Teja. I totally agree with everything you said. (laughs) So um, I'm going to talk about taking our practice out of the hall. Here's one quote. The spiritual path is simply the journey of living our lives. Everyone is on a spiritual path. Most people just don't know it. I bet many of you know who said that, right? She ran for president. Marianne Williamson. (laughs) So, um, as we know, meditation, I think, you know, sitting here at Spirit Rock is wonderful because when you come into retreat, you take the precepts and uh, we meditate and, you know, we're... Uh, engaging our non-cognitive knowledge system. We're trying to feed our intuitive awareness and let wisdom arise and free us. You know, wisdom is really what uh, reduces our suffering and our pain. Um, You know, thinking can do it, you know, our cognitive reasoning, but really not as much (laughs) as, you know, having an insight about what the true nature of a relationship is or you know, um, you know, seeing the impermanence of everything or of, you know, something that we're struggling with of a relationship or of a job or something like that. And uh, seeing um, the unsatisfactoriness of all of that and then realizing that, you know, that's not personal to us. Of course I feel this way, Because, hey, guess what? I was born human in this lifetime. You know, this is a common humanity thing. And trying to... uh, I know some people uh, told me during the group that they're using Ruth King's three reflections, which I use all the time, which is not perfect, not permanent, not personal. And that really helps me come back to, at least I'm, you know, watering the seeds of that insight to arise in that particular moment. And, but, you know, when we leave here, uh, you know, there are some yogis uh, on this retreat who've been practicing for decades. And it was so wonderful to be in groups with them because there was multidirectional wisdom and, uh, Some of you who are newer to the practice, you know, meditation can be very helpful for uh, mental health and for, um, you know, actually just for well-being, but it's not the only part of the path. You know, it's sila samadhi panya, and sila is the ethical conduct. And, um, you know, I've said this before in the hall, but I'll say it again. You know, I fell in love with my partner because he was a heritage Buddhist. And, you know, he worked for a tribe for 20 years. That was, you know, interesting. Well, I winked at him on match because of that. But (laughs) I fell in love with him when I saw his sila, his ethical conduct. And I'm going to tell you, sila is sexy. So, you know, I think that we can really... um, try to, you know, work on that. And that's the main thing our mindfulness is supposed to be looking at internally. 
Um, you know, I do a lot of anti-racism work and, you know, I'm sure like all of us, I see racism, sexism, homophobia, ageism, all of that right here all the time. And, um, you know, I do the little wink. I see you, Mara. I see you, Settler. And then I, you know, try to approach a situation with a little bit more kindness. So our meditation practice isn't just on the cushion. And I think probably all of you know that, right? And to blame everybody else for having all of these things that are probably colonizing us as well, you know, we can't have a little bit more um, patience and kindness about that. And, you know, we really are all related. So um, my brothers here wanted me to talk about social justice. <laughs> so I will say there are groups out there that do social justice work like socially engaged Buddhism. And, um, you know, a lot of sanghas will have a BIPOC group or an LGBTQ group. And actually, um, I have a one sheet on the table and I was surprised to see that it's only one sheet. All of those QR codes... <laughs> That is actually my sheet. It has a URL plus a QR code to all of those free resources I told you about. And I was hoping that they would have it so you could take one and then put your... You guys know what to do with QR codes, right? Oh, they are. Oh, they are there. Okay, great. So, yeah, I mean, those QR codes will te uh, take you to Analio's Seven Spokes of Satipatthana... Guided meditations are like 20 minutes each. They're excellent. Uh, seven spokes. And then I'll take you to his, one of his newest books, which is um, Satipatthana, a practice guide, exactly how to practice with it. You know, and all of that stuff is free. And it'll take you, what else do I have in there? His Anapanasati guided meditations are in there. They're excellent. And that book is free. And then uh, I have a link to, there's a list of how many... Um, meditation sitting groups are on that list of online Zoom um, groups right now. There's like 200 of them, right? There's a lot. They're excellent. Uh, and there's a Zoom link to that too. And, you know, Gil Franzdahl sits every day for, you know, like a 20-minute sit and a 15-minute Dharma talk, who doesn't want to go to that? You know, something like that. They have LGBTQ groups. They have women's groups. They have recovery groups. They have men's groups. You know, you know, just so much community can be also developed there. And um, so, you know, when someone asked the Buddha, who is this practice for? He said, anyone who is interested. And... Um, so I think that, and uh, he all, you know, someone asked him, what language should we speak? And he said, you should always speak the language of the group that you're going to. And so I think that those of us who are doing more work out in the community, it's absolutely, actually, it's appropriate to use the language of the communities that we're working with. And, um, but to do it in a way where, you know, ethical conduct, mental cultivation, and wisdom are at the center of it. Let me see. And there's another group. I'm actually on the board of White Awake, which is a wonderful group. It's an online, they do an online training uh, for collective liberation. And um, that's a wonderful group, White Awake. 
And then, um, what else did I want to say here? Oh, yes. And one thing I wanted to uh, say, I might put this on the board for tomorrow. You know, there's this wonderful graphic I have that shows dependent origination, which is, you know, just the cycle of suffering. And then it shows what the link is to liberation. And, you know, all of us should be so happy. All of us who suffered on this retreat, you are going in the right direction because knowing suffering is what leads us into, you know, trying to do something else. So those of you who had very difficult retreats, it means you're probably hyper-powered. You have a full tank of gas to go up to liberation. You know, the first thing is realizing you're suffering and saying, how the heck do I get out of this? Uh, which builds faith. And, you know, we start practicing and faith develops. And, um, you know, gratitude develops. And, you know, mental cultivation develops. And that's what leads us to liberation. So suffering, you know, is just seeing the first noble truth for, you know, directly in our lives. You know, that's what you're supposed to see. Okay, I'll stop. Okay, I wanted to do a few little quotes. Here's a quote from Shantideva. All who find happiness, happiness in the world have done so by wishing for the happiness of many others. All who find unhappiness in this world have done so by aiming just for their own happiness. So three minutes in outer space and weightlessness will not make you happy. And guess, this will be the last thing that I say. <laughs> and the billions of dollars it took to do that. Isn't that the craziest thing you've ever heard? So here's my last quote. <laughs> Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Do you know who said that? Yes, who said that? Yes, Martin Luther King said that. He was a Buddhist. <laughs> Thank you all so much. I'm up here because you're here. I have so much gratitude for your practice. Thank you so much. I'm so glad this is not a competition. <laughs> To my left is uh, an easy 100 years of practice. And that's just this lifetime. <laughs> Sitting next to Dharma whales, I feel like a Dharma shrimp, you know? <laughs> oh, brine or something. When I came here and I heard the triple gem, Buddha Dharma Sangha, I'd come out of uh, growing up on the East Coast around a lot of Italians and a lot of Catholicism. I mean, my family wasn't into it. But I grew up in that kind of framework. And then I just overlaid that onto the triple gem. I was like, okay, so Buddha's God now and He's loving me, but it's really hard, you know? <laughs> Somewhat disappointed. Yeah. The, the, the suttas are something I'll never be able to really understand. 
and then the Sangha's brand new people to be annoyed with. <laughs> Fantastic. Sign me up. And it reminded me there's this great Zen uh, monk who has been sitting in this cave for decades and he, he reaches enlightenment and he takes his stainless awareness and he starts going back down the village and he just, one person just walks by him and he just turns around and starts walking back up. <laughs> <laughs> it all made so much sense. There's a, there's a sign in a restaurant in Santa Cruz. I just love to sign. It says, uh, the staff here are doing their best. Otherwise, they'd be doing better. <laughs> just nailed it, you know? It's us, you know? No one perfect. Everyone trying so hard. So it's just... Um, you know, many of us know the feeling of uh, separation, of trying to figure out how to be at home in this world. How do we do this? What do we belong to? It's uh, hard to simply relax and be at home. There's something not quite right that I just don't belong. Hmm. And this relational field that we find ourselves in is where so many of our wounds come from and so much of our healing, right? Yeah. When we talk about the word refuge, is uh, if we break that word down to its roots, ref, so re is back, and then fujari is to flee. So refuge is to flee back. This implies a returning to something already known, our, our true nature, our Buddha nature, and truth. And I love this idea that our practice can be a sanctuary where we get to come as we are and rest. But I think we deserve that externally as well. And so um, we hear this, some, one of the Pali words for spiritual friendship is kalyanamita. Kalyanamita. Friendship with the lovely. Imagine if that's how people felt in our presence. There's friendship with the lovely. That's where I was. That's who I was with. And so we can offer that to each other, this sense of kindness and friendship. And it helps us with the most important part, which is this daily practice. It doesn't matter how much I read about it. It doesn't matter how much I adore it. I have to go to the well very often and just say time out, because my mind takes over, the world gets its mitts on me, and all of a sudden I forget my true nature. I forget what's mine and what's not mine, right? I kind of, uh, it's easy to forget. The world is very entrancing. So I try to not make my practice optional, just like brushing my teeth every morning, just like taking a shower. There's a whole bunch of stuff. 
I eat every day, right? So we know how to do things every day. It's like, will we? You know? I, I've seen people like, oh, you know, I don't sit much, but my whole life is a meditation. Oh, my God. You can't even, you don't even believe that. There's no way. I've never seen the fruit of such a practice. There's no fruit because there's no practice. So, stay clear. It's very important to not go too far from the well. And the well is resting in our own intrinsic awareness, our own kindness. And a sangha can help us with that. It's so much easier to do with company. It's just somebody to walk on the journey with us. Yeah. And it's a place for us to compare notes on what's working and what's not. And sometimes when I'm confused, the people around me are not confused. They can see clearly into where I'm stuck, just like I can help them. So we do that for each other. So if you're part of a sangha, beautiful. And I hope you contribute to that sangha in whatever meaningful way you can, because that's what makes it ours. When we contribute, we give people jobs in our sangha that don't even need to be done. We just know the value of them contributing anything. It doesn't matter what it is. So, and if you don't have a sangha yet, find one. I mean, almost everybody's online, and I know it's, a, it's not the same as in person, but this is where we're at right now, right? Right now it's like this. So, the good news is, you can sit with amazing teachers every day, any day of the week. It's like, okay, you know, Thursday at 4 o'clock in the morning, I want to sit. Cool. Check out Singapore online. You know what I mean? So it's important because it personifies a shift from this whole thing being about me to me being a part of something larger. And that's... Uh, that's that's important. Another facet that we have to acknowledge, at least in Western culture, is our stoic individualism. You know? But they they recently closed the John Wayne Meditation Center. <laughs> no results. Just we just can't do it alone, man. It's just uh I, I would have never imagined that being a part of my story, but there's a little part of that that's like, oh, I can see my fingerprints on that suffering. I know what it is to try to go about it alone. Yeah. I mean, really, what is it? It's another excuse to connect. Anything that we're doing. It's like, oh, you're in a play? Oh, you're meditating? Oh, you're you know, picking up garbage on the beach. It's just an excuse to connect. They get me out of this I, me, and mine, just as the, the blinders on. So I would uh, invite you to, to become part of a community, any community that you feel supported in. Yeah. For me, my sangha, We've been sitting together for a long time. Some of the people are here. And it's where I keep my agreements with myself. Right? 
It's important for me to be held to accountability. And we get to learn and grow together and evolve. And it has evolved in the last 18 years of meeting. Like they saw me become a father. They saw me move to the mountains. They saw me go through a divorce. They, you know, we've gone through a lot together. And that's meaningful to be known, to be witnessed. That was why I felt so alone. Nobody ever knew me. Because I'm going to open up to people. I always sat by the door. I'm not a joiner. You know, terminal outsider. You know, because I figured why let them get to know me? Then they might not like me. So I'm not going to take that chance. So at least I could always just leave like, ah, they never knew me. Right? So I held the keys. And I held back because I was afraid. And then the joy of being known, like I was just explaining to you, the joy of being witnessed and being actually supported. <laughs> I never felt supported because I never let them get to know me. Yeah, so that was a big uh, part of it for me, for creating Sangha and being in a Sangha. So that's my pitch. May you find a community to support your practice. Okay, dear ones, we want to hear from you again. We'd like to know what's on your heart, and especially if you haven't spoken yet, we'd love to hear from more folks. That way, everybody gets a chance. And we'll do our best to keep our answers precise. Okay, uh, please, nice and loud. Maybe someday I'll hit gold and never have to ask you this question. <laughs> but for now, um, and I'm asking you all also because you obviously have all gone on retreat a ton. Mm -hmm. I've gone on retreat a ton for being 39, but you're all much older and wiser than me. Not that much older than me. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of a daily practice? Instead of a daily practice? No, no, no. Okay, cool. Definitely. I feel like the expectation is that if we have a daily practice, we 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. It's not true for me. I still like to go on retreat a lot. I find it to be very luxurious. Like it's, it's like I don't have to cook or clean. Or, you know, bells ring and people bring me food. Like I'm super down. You know, so I think it's like a part of my self-care. It's like, can I actually shut up for 10 days? You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's, it's a real relief. For me, and then I get to sit with people I love, and um, you know, hear these teachings that are so precious to me, and put them into action. You know, I can't sit for a few hours at home; that just doesn't happen. But on retreat, I can really go and let the nervous system completely wind down. So I think, uh, I think, I don't think you'll have. Any other answers, please? Do you think she shouldn't go on retreat anymore? <laughs> no more retreat for you. <laughs> Red flagged. Uh, no, the, the the beauty of it, of course, it is an incredible refuge. It's a unique opportunity, and we have it now in our time in this in this time in this country right now and in such a, an amazing way to to have the um, the opportunity to you know do the the deep dives that it that it offers and not everyone is the same so the you know one of the things i was talking about was multiple intelligences and multiple uh pathways of learning that are unique to individuals so um, for you, you you are deeply nourished by that, as as many of us are. But it may be a little bit different for others. So just just wanted to highlight that for a moment and really acknowledge you. And then if someone else has a different you know um, uh, orientation to uh, to practice or where they are in their flow, it's um, that's okay too. Yeah. So thank you for that. Wow, that was an excellent observation. I think you're right. I think we need to do a study about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had never really thought about it that way because I, you know, I'm signed up to do uh, two months in 2022. So that's what I do for my, you know, that's my best vacation is going on retreat. But uh, yeah, I mean, that might be true. I think that you probably have something there. But, you know, as Tasia said, maybe there are some people who don't need that deep dive, but I don't... They might have a different approach to practice. To practice. Yeah. I mean, but this, you know, practice is pretty... I mean, there are a lot of other contemplative practices and, you know, works that are absolutely impactful. And we're talking about this one right now. <laughs> and I think that I think that you might have something there. I hadn't hadn't really thought about that before. I know that people who are certified to do MBSR and these other things, they have to do a retreat a year or something. Do they have to? Do they? They do, yeah. So that probably um, you know builds up that equanimity and those positive qualities, but you know, I I hadn't really thought about that before, but I think you might have something. 
There's, I know of places that do weekends. And, I mean, when I can't get away, which I, I can't so much anymore, because I have a little one, I just, sometimes I just do four hours just in my, in my house, in my backyard, when my boy is at school. And it's just like, okay, a few hours in a row of sitting, walking, sitting, walking. It's not a replacement for it. But if I feel that I'm getting, that I really need to, to spend some time with myself, there's all kinds of forms. There is all kinds of forms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm trying to think of because you're talking about in person, and I'm just kind of out of the loop a bit. But there's a lot of places that offer weekends. You know. Yeah. Anything come to mind for y'all? Well, I think that we probably underestimate what a self retreat any of us could do, too, right? So I think that it, it's nice to do retreats at a center. I'm thinking of the first refuge, but, you know, you can't fly to Massachusetts to do a long weekend or whatever. But, you know, at the first weekend, at the first refuge, you're there on your own. <laughs> you know, you're just doing the practice and they're feeding you and stuff. But, you know, I'm just addressing what your deeper need or question is, is how do we get, you know, just to be able to do a long weekend when you know, we um, have a very busy schedule and have to earn a living. That's a great question, too. Uh, INC used to have day-longs. I don't know if they still do. IRC? Yeah. Yeah, he's got a center now in Santa Cruz. He has a what? A center in Santa Cruz. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, there's... If you look for weekends, you'll be able to find them locally. I promise that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I just did one in October. I had a weekend, so for the big heart city, Sangha in San Francisco. You know, 50 people, we got a retreat center, and we just rested, you know. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, yeah of course. Was. Please. We come into this world as babies. We're supposed to have a beautiful human nature. I get that. I I really believe that. And we, as babies, we put out a little shit, but there's no talk about forgiveness. We get to be older babies. We put out not just literal shit, but some metaphorical shit. (laughs) And then in comes forgiveness. And with forgiveness, but there's three things that bother me. The first one is the forgiver is sort of judgy. They get to decide who's bad. The second thing that bothers me is the the person or the whatever's being judged, they either have bad behavior or they're a bad person. And that really irritates me. But what really jacks my butt is this thing. I learned about it from a bottle of bubble bath.
I'm grateful to Bonnie you brought it up. It reminded me I have optic constellation. Yeah. I have a, I have a response to that. Desmond Tutu and his daughter wrote an incredible book on forgiveness. And if Desmond Tutu can forgive South Afri- Africa and apartheid, you know, and what he what uh, they say is that uh, there's two cycles of harm. There's one cycle where you get harmed. And, um, you know, you take it very personally and you want to get back at the person and you actually, um, you know, you forget a common humanity part of it, that this is just part of being, you take it very personally and you actually strike back and hurt that person or hurt another person. You take it very personally and that just strengthens your habit pattern of bad behavior and that goes on. What Desmond Tutu says, the forgiveness cycle, and I actually have a nice graphic of that. I'll put it on the board. But anyway, um, what happens is you get wronged. And then uh, what they say that we should do is actually be able to tell somebody about it. You should be able to tell the person that you wronged, just as you said, very beautifully. You know, I think that you laid out what his you know, um, authentic forgiveness practices. You have an opportunity to, you know, talk about the wrong that was done to you and, you know, let everybody know that and have people acknowledge that that was a wrong being done. And then, you know, I think the most interesting part of this, and I said this briefly during the meditation, was you can decide whether you want to, um, you know, maintain that relationship or not. You know, we can forgive ourselves or forgive others and just say, you know, I forgive you, but you're out of my life, you know. And um, so I would uh, say to definitely maybe look at the work that they have done because I think it's the most, you know, um, spiritually appropriate uh, discussion of forgiveness I've ever seen. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Then you don't need forgiveness. If you're in a place that does, it's like you're human. Shit happens. Right. Well, but I mean, what about forgiving the person that, you know, harmed you, that, you know, made you have that protective use of force? I mean, that's, I think, what we're thinking about. Yeah. It, it, it makes me feel too judgy. It's like, I understand that the reason they harmed me is frequently not because they wanted to harm me. But it's a, as Marshall Rosenberg says, um, uh, something about inept cry for help or a plea for help. Right. If someone has bad behavior, the ticket is to say, where is the please in this? Right. But, you know, that in and of itself is a wise, a wise, um, you know, view of being harmed. I mean, most people don't think that. Most people think, oh, this person's a bad person. And, and you know, there are people, I mean, all of us have certain mental factors that have us harm others. But this is a great question for you. This is your path for a while. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe a different, please. 
Okay. We can hear you. Could you just lower your, just for a second, while you're talking? Okay, thank you. Um, no problem. I um, struggle, or I'm a very creative person. And when I... Are writing retreats, and that might be a better path. You know that there's there's lots of different kinds of retreats that are geared toward creation, right? Here, I find that when I begin to write, I don't stop, and even when I am stopped, even if I say, "Okay, I'm just gonna do one session a day," I just take one session a day where I write down all my scary insights and. Um, you know, that's going to benefit the world. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very slippery slope because the, the discursive mind doesn't need much encouragement. And it's like, can I just be here with me? You know, I, I know we have to go back and find a way to answer the to the suffering of the world, right? To respond, right? And so that may be a, it's a very beautiful intention, but it's like, can I just be on a meditation retreat and meditate? Or do I need to find worth and find creativity? And, and is there a place, because there's hardly any place we get to be bored. You know, you've been in a doctor's office without magazines. <laughs> sitting in that cauldron people are just like mm, you take their phone out they just you know it's like there's a place for boredom for us you know so i think there's a there's a value in it but you know you got to follow your own wisdom and it sounds like you are yeah and i know one other thing i'll say about it is what caught my attention is when you said i want to get it into a recording device as soon as possible. So sometimes, no matter what the behavior is, I, I used to stay at the monasteries, the, sometimes things wouldn't be against the rules. 
There's like, you know, 227 rules the monks live by. Way more for the females, obviously. <laughs> and and sometimes they would be like, yeah, no, that wasn't against the rules, but, but was it beautiful? Was it inspired? And I was like, hmm, I don't know. So sometimes what I do is I look at, well, what is the tone of the hand that's reaching? That's a question I ask myself to know if something is is beautiful, right? So when I'm feeling that kind of like, I gotta get this out of me, I gotta, I gotta find a way to get this in me or whatever it is, it's like, whoa, whoa, that's, that's a compulsion in me, right? So that's just me, I'm not putting that on you. So that's another way to investigate, is this, is this wholesome or is this compulsory? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I, I hate to have any hard rules like, okay, no this. Or I don't feel absolute in that way. I just, it just hasn't uh, been conducive to peace for me. So, yeah. yeah. And just let me say briefly, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know, we're engaging another knowledge system here. You know, intuitive awareness, a whole different non-cognitive, non-conceptual. You know, we have access to that. That's where our wisdom can arise. And I think that we, you know, weaken our ability to interact with that when we're cognitively, working cognitively. I don't think we've said that uh, that thoughts aren't are always not telling the truth. So say say a little bit more about that, so I can understand you better. I think I would take a moment just to lean back into what Bonnie just offered and understand that that the discursive nature of our of our minds is is kind of the way that it is and understand that practice in this way is also nurturing this other aspect of us so it's giving uh it's giving life to deep creativity and, um, you know, so in that way, the, the kind of the pathway of trying to sort out those kinds of things that arise for us in our, in our minds, it doesn't always, it's not always a fruitful process because usually one thought will lead to another and then it leads to an assessment about that and a judgment about that. Um, 
some aspects of of good thinking are quite important, you know. So, but there's also an important time to uh, to learn as we're as we're doing in our practice now to kind of uh, give. It's not about turning that off. It's about giving focus to this other aspect that Bonnie was talking about. The non uh, conceptual, non-discursive aspect of resting in presence intelligence. Is that speaking to you at all? You're saying instead of the word, what is the feeling of feeling? That could be a gateway to that. So I, I, I feel a little bit that our, that our dialogue and our conversation isn't quite focused on what's really at the core of your question. So if there's some, if there's any way that you can that you can say a little bit more that we can clarify that, I think that would be useful. What's what's underneath your question? Yeah, just look at that for a minute. Uh, maybe I can help. I, I said we can't depend on the mind to tell us what's real, right? So that's so. So we can't take it as an ultimate reality because it's just thought. We don't even know where it's coming from. We don't know where they're going, right? So when we're here, we're saying, "I right, time out on all that." Can I just sit in this non-conceptual mind and just? to connect with a deeper wisdom that is not like, you do this, or you didn't do that, or you always do this, and you never do, you know, it can be pretty active up here. And it's just like, time out on all that business. Can we just go to a different level in our knowing? And maybe, maybe it is. Maybe there is some wisdom like, oh, maybe I'm not telling my wife I love her enough or doing enough in the world for service, right? That might be true. But it's going to be true on Monday, too. <laughs> right? So we're just saying, like, you, you don't have to figure it all out today. Connect in with your truth. And that's what I love about retreat, is it connects us in with a deeper part of our truth and not just the mind and what's never, uh, never seems to be enough. Right? Well, I mean, yeah. So I hope that's helpful. Someone in my group today talked about grief as 
an expression of love. And I thought that was really, you know, wisdom arising. So uh, I'm the one that put that chart on the wall. And (laughs) (laughs) I will say that you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, one answer for everything is not, you know, that's conceptual, conceptual mind trying to know what everything is with words and boxes and things like that. So I think, you know, that's, you know, you've got wisdom arising when you saw that. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. And who was the one who talked about grief as an expression of love? Do you want to say something about that? She said that um, uh, she came to understand that grief was unexpressed love. That, you know, that's the way that she wants to hold the grief. Because I know you lost your very close person to her recently. And um, she held it as um, unexpressed love or a love that can't be expressed because that person's not here anymore. And um, actually, yeah. That was beautiful, I thought. And I think that, you know, grief, I mean, in that, you know, there's different ways to hold all of that. But I think that you're right. I mean, there, you know, grief is not just one thing for sure. And uh, grief could make you, you know, could rise, you know, could switch into compassion, right? Yeah. I think to say that this is just the way it is, is not very nuanced, and you're right that it's just a little bit too, you know, this is what's right, yeah, declarative or something. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, thank you.
is that part of the teaching that you don't need to, like to avoid suffering because it's always sounds to me like a relief or we're seeking a relief from suffering. Maybe we just need to work with it. Yeah, I hope you didn't hear that in our teachings that we're trying to avoid it. I remember saying very clearly, I hope you don't waste any of it. Right? Right? Because it does just come factory stock in this body, in this life. So there is no avoidance of it. I just don't want to waste it. I want to use it. I want to use it. They say, They say that the, the true teachings are not based, they're not placed on the heart. They're not placed in the heart. That the real Dharma, and this actually comes from the Jewish tradition, that the real teachings are not placed in the heart. They're placed on the heart. So that when the heart breaks, it goes in. So that's my understanding of how to work with the suffering that comes with this life and how to use that as alchemy and make it something beautiful, right? Yeah. I've been heartbroken a lot lately and I can feel the characteristics, me really seeing clearly how impermanent this thing is. Amazing. I miss it so much. I miss it. I think things are solid. I think people that are here today will be there tomorrow because they're young and healthy, and then they're not. Right? So you have a, we have a, they give us a deep dive into the true nature of this floating world. And so for me, that's how I hold my relationship with suffering. I'm not trying to avoid it. I just don't want to squander it. Yeah. Maybe sit for a couple minutes. I know there's so many questions, and maybe tomorrow we'll try to take some more. Yeah. And let's float down back into the body from the world of words. The conceptual mind that wants to know so bad. And see if you can connect in with the felt sense of just this, just this body sitting here, breathing.
and just giving ourselves permission to be whatever is there with that. So maybe there's a fundamental okayness, or maybe there's grief, or maybe there's happiness. Whatever is there, just allowing it to be there in its fullness, not trying to take the edge off it or trying to change it or manage it in any way, but just a permission to be just as it is right now. Not pushing, not pulling. Just sitting right in the center. And the perfect perfect truth that right now it's like this. The heart is like this. The mind is like this. The body is like this. And the message of the Dharma is, I am here for you.
So maybe we'll have the invitation be the same as it's been the last few nights. Trusting your own energy. If you want to stay up and meditate, please, if you have the energy, do what you came here to do. If it feels like you'd rather turn in, enjoy the walk under the stars. I'm going to see you in the morning. Thank you for your questions and your kind attention. Last thing, um, remember we are back in noble silence, so please um, let us hold this beautiful container together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.